the Lax Factor Podcast. What is up, college lacrosse fans? You're watching episode number 263 of the Lax Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Hoost, and today we are going to talk about the four games that are being played in the quarterfinal weekend for Division One. We're going to talk about the two games that are being played in the semifinal weekend for Division Two, and then Division Three also is having their quarterfinal weekend. We're going to touch on game every game that's being played this weekend across all levels in men's lacrosse. And then uh, we're going to go a little bit deeper, and we're going to today we're going to kind of look at uh, the RPIs of the D2, D3 teams and try to pick winners for all of those, even though I'm going to stink at it. Before I get into it, as always, be sure to like, subscribe. Uh, if you're on YouTube, hit the notification bell so you're notified when we put out more videos. If you are an audio listener, as I keep telling people, you may want to switch up your platform to Spotify because then you can get the benefit of both the audio version and the video version together at the same time. So early in the show when we're showing highlights on the weekend recaps, you can kind of flip your phone sideways, watch the recaps, and when you want to go back to audio and not see anything and see my stupid mug talking to you, you can always switch back to just the audio version. So Spotify may be the place to be, even though you can find the podcast anywhere where you get your podcasts. And that's it. I'm going, oh, and then as always, you can go to laxfactor.com, watch the videos there. You can get swag, podcast-related t-shirts, and non-podcast-related t-shirts galore and all of that stuff. So to start here, we are talking about the men's um quarterfinal weekend here and uh it you know should be one hell of a weekend here of lacrosse overall but let me get off of this screen and we're going to talk about this virginia and georgetown game first seven seeded georgetown against the second seed virginia now at this stage everyone left is pretty comparable in terms of offensive and defensive efficiency so through this whole episode whenever you hear me say hey they're ranked this in offense and they're ranked this on defense. I'm talking about lacrosse reference, uh, this website here, lacrosse reference. I'm speaking of their offensive and defensive efficiency scores, which you can see here. And what that really is, is it's an adjusted offensive. D it takes their total number of possessions. It takes their total number of, go of goals scored. And you do the math to get a, a rate at which you score based on each possession. And those possessions do not include things like failed clears or possessions that would be maybe considered a double possession due to stacking faceoffs and things of that sort. So it is adjusted, but it gives you an idea of, hey, the, 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 this offense scores this percentage of time when they have the ball and they give up goals this percentage of time. So it's a D, especially at this point the, the the date is pretty meaningful in terms of how these teams match up so uh, that is what I'm using whenever I say hey they're ranked this offensively or defensively I'm not going against like goals against average which is a terrible metric overall uh, it's useful when we're deep diving but you know not the greatest of metrics so either way that's the metrics that we're using here so Virginia they come in with the highest with the highest rated offense in the nation with an offensive efficiency of 41.4 percent which is ab absolutely incredible especially considering who they've played. Yes, they have beaten up some chumps as well, but game in and game out, they're putting up solid offensive numbers. Georgetown, not terrible. They're 10th in scoring efficiency, 34.6 of their possessions they score on, but there's a that's, this is one of the biggest gaps in terms of offensive efficiencies between the two matchups here this weekend because Virginia is, has just been that good offensively overall. Xander Dixon, he's paced the UVA offense with 77 points. He's got 58 goals, 19 assists. As you know, 
know if you know anything about the Slim Reaper. He's an off-ball guy, and, and he's like an in-close off-ball guy. This isn't like a Mac O'Keefe that would play off-ball and would snipe shots from in-close or, you know, Mac O'Keefe's game was kind of that mid-to-deep shooting game, finding soft spots around the defense. What, what Dixon does is he gets right up close and personal. The dude is an incredible cutter. He will back cut off of guys when they turn their heads. He will just get open on the crease, lose his guy on the crease. So he can score anywhere from about 10 yards. Maybe even 11 yards would be his range. You do not see him light it up too often. Most of the time, he's just getting in close, and he's got incredibly soft hands. The dude knows how to get open. Just an ab- Slim Reaper is an absolutely perfect name for this dude. Now, they've got a Mac O'Keefe-type guy in Peyton Cormier. So I think one of the reasons this this Virginia offense works so well, you've got Dixon, who's the cutter, the guy that's going to play in and around the crease area, opposite guys that are dodging. You have him for in close, but then you've got a guy like Cormier who can camp and play on the fringes of the offense. So as Dixon's attracting a bunch of attention, cutting, and they're making sure they take care of the middle of the field, they have to kind of protect that bubble around the edges as well because Cormier is always camping on that left side as you got guys like Schellenberger Connor dodging up that right side or kind of trying to dodge on the right side of the field you've got Dixon trying to get open in the middle of the field and you've got Cormier kind of uh, pacing around him and and kind of cutting down as a second cutter behind him Uh, so those two off ball work incredible Cormier's numbers he's got 60 points off 49 goals 11 helpers Schellenberger's done the bulk of the quarterbacking and carrying for this team 47 assists on the season for Schellenberger to go with 21 goals 68 points total so overall this offense is incredible uh, especially on the attack now midfield Thomas McConvie for Virginia 27 and 21 Griffin Schutz 21 and 16 the key with these two guys is they get it done both as Dodgers and they can feed as they draw slots and they draw a lot of slides because these guys are both monsters. They're big. They're both athletic. They factored heavily, and as I said, have been good both uh, in, in in creating points for themselves and generating offense for other. Jeff Connors, 18 assists, that doesn't hurt either. So when you have guys like Dixon and Cormier, having guys around them that can that can draw slides is huge, and they can do that. And having guys around that can that can bang, you know, that can shoot from outside. It's key to be able to have outside shooters because that just opens up that much uh, things in the middle that much more for Xander Dixon. You can only cheat down on him so much before you just start giving up bombs. I mean, they've they've got a bunch of guys that can let let shit loose from deep here. Now, Tucker Dordovic, he's been the Hoyas' big dog, no pun intended, but pun intended, putting up 76 points off 63 goals and 13 helpers. The kid's a goal-scoring machine, an absolute dodging threat. He doesn't need any help to get offense, to generate offense. Uh, he had some shooting issues early on, and people were starting to sh- chirp him, but his shooting percentage at this point is up in the area, 35% now. Uh, so he's looked incredible for Georgetown, putting up at least five points in each of their eight uh, their last eight contests overall. That stretch includes two six-goal games and a 10-goal outing against Providence in the first round of the Big East tournament. He had six goals last week against Yale in the NCAA first round. Brian Minikis, Another transfer, Colgate kid, 31 and 23. He's been a big, not a big surprise, but for people who didn't know him, I I, I knew of Minicus because he's in upstate playing in upstate New York and they played Syracuse. 
all those years, and he was always one of their best guys. So I've been watching Minicus for a while. I wasn't surprised that he's doing this well at, let's say, I'm not surprised he's doing well at Georgetown. I'm a little bit surprised he's doing this well with 31 goals and 23 helpers. Jacob Kelly, 20 and 27. He's the UNC transfer. Nikki Solomon, 33 and 9, another UNC transfer. Graham Bundy Jr., 30 and 10. All verifiable killers as well. And when this group's playing well, they're as good as anyone offensively as well. Now, I say they're as good as anyone. They're not nearly as efficient as Virginia has been still. And they don't have the, the, that start. They have depth. They don't have the, the depth and the chemistry that these UVA guys, I think, have had because you, you are still dealing with a lot of transfers that are being injected. But I, I think Georgetown offensively, without I'm just saying this off hip, I feel like Georgetown has been playing as well offensively now as they've been playing all year. So I feel like even though those numbers are skewed in the sense that it looks like Virginia is much more efficient in offense, I think at this point Georgetown's playing some pretty damn efficient offense. So I think they match up well. I give the slight edge to Virginia, though. Now, defensively, We'd all have assumed Georgetown would have the edge at this point because Georgetown has been the big defensive team here that everyone talks about their defense, but not so much this year. Virginia's coming in ranked 20th in defensive efficiency, giving up points on 26.5 of their defensive possessions. Georgetown actually finished below the Cavs, getting scored on 26.7% of the time. Very close, but a slight edge to Virginia there as well. Now, I think the Cavs have a little bit more defensive depth, especially at close defense, where, where, yes, you know, the Hoya They've got Will Bowen, but I do like the trio of Cade Sawstad, Cole Kastner, and Quentin Matsui a little bit better at close defense because they all three of them are capable of covering top guys, and you've even seen Matsui cover other teams. I think Matsui spent some time covering O'Neal with Virginia. Now, granted, Duke has owned Virginia, so that hasn't necessarily played well for them, but I do like that trio a little bit better at close defense than Bowen and company for Georgetown. Now, it's about dead even in cage. Both Matthew Noons of Virginia and Danny Hinks of Georgetown are sitting at 53% in terms of their shot stopping. Hinks has more years of college lacrosse under his belt, but Noons has played two full seasons at this point in the ACC and has legit NCAA tournament experience last year. So I think the goalie battle could go either way. Um, Hinks being a veteran, maybe he's got a more level head coming into this game, but Noons with playoff experience and playing in the ACC for a killer like Virginia, uh, you know, I'd say that's kind of a wash in cage for them. Now, the battle at the faceoff dot, that's going to be a good one, and that's going to be a trend we're going to see across just about all divisions at this point is every team that's left, typically most of them are going to have a very good faceoff guy. James Riley holds a slight edge over Petey fucking LaSala in terms of win percentage, 59 to 57%. Riley wins a larger number of draws to himself as well, but Petey can expect more support from his wings. UVA is going to have slightly more athletic wing play uh, as they have the advantage in terms of the faceoff unit as a hole, I think, due to those wings. Now, this should be another really even matchup on paper, but LaSala comes in with all of the experience, uh, that you know, playoff experience. He's won two national championships. So I'm Team PD all the way. I think an edge goes to Virginia and their full unit, not just because of playoff experience, but because of athleticism as well. And I think they've been, I think both are streaky at times, you know, you know, PD has a, a tendency to have a rough time, but he adjusts well. Riley, same thing. So I like Riley offensively and PD offensively. I don't think either one has an advantage there. Riley put up a bunch of points last year. So I think this is, you could call it a wash, but I think a slight edge goes to Virginia because I think they have a little bit more depth in their personnel. Now, all in all, should be an incredible game. I expect it to be close. 
Uh, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised, though, if one of these teams just got hot and pulled away from the other. Um, so it's like one of those things where I want to make a prediction, and I'm going to. I think Virginia is going to win by one to three goals, but I wouldn't be surprised to see one of these teams just get hot and beat the other by eight. It wouldn't, you know, and, and it could go either way in that, but I do think we'll probably see a battle, and one to three goals is the prediction uh, in favor of Virginia. I think Virginia is going to take this and advance to the Final Four. And, uh, you know, and like I said here, I already talked about scores and everything like that. I didn't go through and show you numbers. Uh, so screw it for that one. I had enough written up. We're out of it. We're talking about Michigan and we're talking about Duke here for this next one. Well, Duke got hosed for sure in drawing Delaware in the first round as a one seed. I think this game at this point now feels a little bit more appropriate to me. Not that Michigan can't do damage. Michigan has been playing really good lacrosse, so it's not to say that Duke has the best draw out of everybody, but Michigan is one of the unseeded teams. Michigan, one of the teams left that has more losses than others. The only kicker for Duke is on paper. You'd think, all right, well, Duke is going to roll in this one. Problem being, Duke is has proven they're susceptible to playing down to their opponent. Like I, that, that sounds like an insult to Delaware. It's not. I just mean when you compare the athleticism all over the field and the depth all over the field, you compare Duke to Delaware. Duke should beat them by five, six, seven goals. I think with that. The kicker being the matchups were incredible. Grant did a hell of a job on O'Neill, so on and so forth. I think the kicker here with the Duke Michigan matchup, Mich- Delaware. Is tech? I'll get into that. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to whack, I'm going to get myself out of order. So let's start diving in here. Offensively, let's go offensively with Duke first. Duke has the edge. They're ranked third in offensive efficiency overall, scoring on 37.2 of their possession, uh, 37.2% of their possessions. Michigan isn't too bad themselves though. They've got a 35.1% offensive efficiency score. That's good for seventh in the land. So Michigan is also very good offensively. The big three for Michigan: Michael Bame, he's 45 and 26 for 71 points. Josh Zuada, 34 and 28 for 62 points, and Ryan. Cohen, 27 and 29 for 56 points. Zawad has been Michigan's leading scorer since 2021. So having Bame perform so well has been a huge lift for this offense, especially lately. It's taken pressure off Zawada as the primary dodger. It's allowed them to build some chemistry as multiple guys can now sting defenses off the dodge. It's, it's been a much more balanced offense for Michigan, and they're starting to play with a lot of chemistry now, which is why we've seen them uh, do as well as they have through the playoffs. Now, Brennan O'Neill, he's going to be the best player on the field Saturday, bar none. 84 points will lead both teams as they take the field. 45 goals, 39 assists off 35% shooting. O'Neal, he can lean on Dyson Williams as he's always open in and around the crease area, high crease, low crease, just off the backside of the crease. He doesn't give a shit. The Honey Badger doesn't give two shits at all. He'll finish wherever you hit him. McAdory, another legit threat, 33 and 23 on the season, fast as hell, high IQ. Both McAdory and O'Neill love to press the defense before they get settled. So in clearing situations, once Duke gets the ball on their end of the field, as guys are subbing in and out, Duke doesn't wait. Uh, O'Neill and McAdory love to get the ball on the wings on either side and dodge to the middle of the field. I expect you're going to see a lot of that against Michigan on Saturday. Now, Duke holds a much greater advantage overall on the defensive side of the ball. Duke's defense is ranked 12th in the nation in efficiency, getting stops on 75.5% of their possessions, whereas Michigan is ranked all the way down at 49th. I said offensively, the biggest discrepancy was between Virginia and whoever they're playing. Who's Virginia playing again? Um, 
Georgetown. Oh my gosh, just drawing total blank here. Uh, but defensively, the biggest the biggest difference here is between Duke and Michigan overall. Um, the number stings a bit more when you consider Duke's played a tougher schedule overall as well. Not by a ton. Michigan's schedule's not bad, but it's by enough to matter here. And that's where I think the big difference comes into play. Delaware had a top 15 defense. Michigan's is 50th, and they're going to have to try to figure out a way to corral um, Brennan O'Neill, and I think that's going to be very tough. Now, in cage, Hunter Taylor, Michigan's new starter, slight edge on Wilhelm in terms of save percentage, 54 to 52. However, Helms faced 314 shots compared to Taylor's 152. So over twice as many shots from Helm in terms of experience this season specifically. Helm is a graduate transfer. So even though he played at the D3 level, he's been playing college across since he was two. Um, uh, although it's worth mentioning, Taylor stopped 62% of his shots against Penn State in the Big Ten semis, 74% of the shots he faced against Michigan in the Big Ten finals, and he looked solid against Cornell in his first weekend to play in playoff lacrosse, 53% against Cornell in that tournament game. Uh, this game provides us with another crazy matchup at the faceoff dot. Michigan comes in with the duo of Justin Wheatfeld and Nick Rowlett. Uh, Wheatfeld, 65%. Nick Rowlett, 57%. They have been absolute beasts as of lately. As I said, Wheatfeld has the higher winning percentage of any Fogo in the tournament left. And the fact that they can send either one of these guys out against Jake Naso, I think, is a huge advantage for Michigan. Duke is used to getting the better of the possession battle. And in a game like this, Naso is going to take all of the draws for the most part for Duke. He's going to have to be spelled a little bit more than normal, I think, because most teams you play don't send out two guys depending on who's hot or just depending on who needs a rest. His 64% though for Naso is the second highest out of all the guys that are still playing this weekend. And like I said, my concern is he going to be gassed by the end of this game, especially if it's a high scoring game and they got to go out there a lot. Rowlett and Wheatfield are going to be able to take fewer reps each. Both have, uh, you know, if they both have solid days, especially that's going to be a huge strain on Naso if they're both playing well. Because um, that'll make for a very tired Naso by the end of the game, so that's something to watch for sure. Uh, I still think slight edge to Naso, but you in this one here, it's kind of a wash, and you're going to have to watch how it plays out. Because I feel like Naso might be able to handle his business a little better in the beginning of the game, but we'll have to see as the game wears on if those possessions start to kind of lean a little bit towards Michigan. Uh, now, while I don't want to count Michigan out, especially as well as, they, as they've been playing over the last few weeks, I think Duke is just too good. I think they played a little bit down to Delaware last. Week and I think Michigan isn't too much better. I think Michigan might be a slightly better than, team than Delaware overall, but you might you you can make the argument they're pretty dead even. Uh, Delaware's offense is incredible and their defense is definitely better than Michigan's. They have a better goalie uh, as well. Just Michigan plays tougher teams overall. I think Duke's going to come out and play crazy on the defensive side, and I'm not sure Michigan is going to do as well of a job defensively on O'Neill as Delaware did. Like I said, they get, they have Darby. They have guys that, are, that can play on the defensive side of the ball. They just don't have a grant you know, like Delaware does to try to match up with somebody like O'Neill. Delaware is a very good defensive team. I said they were ranked top 15. They were ranked 14th in def defensive efficiency. So I wasn't surprised when I saw O'Neill struggle a little bit against them. Uh, I don't think O'Neill's going to struggle in this one. Prediction, Duke by four to six goals. Once again, not shitting on Michigan. I'm just trying to guess here what's going to happen. Duke is the obvious favorite in this game. So all the Michigan fans, don't chirp me. This is just, I'm just going off of data and the eye test overall. If Michigan won. I will be delighted with you all to see an upset and to see a great game. I just doubt that that will happen. And I think Duke does end up taking this one. Next game, 
we have to talk about. I'm just making sure I'm good over here. Army against the five seeded, the fifth seeded Penn State here. Uh, Nittany Lions. Now, this should be a very good game. I think out of all the games here, both of these teams match up well offensively and defensively. Both teams have goalies with the capacity to get hot. Both teams have a lot to prove. Offensively, almost dead even. Penn State's 22nd in the land, 32.7% in offensive efficiency. Army is 23rd. 31.4%. Both teams can get it done, both at attack and midfield. They each have dodgers and creators at, at each position. Both teams have guys that can light it up from outside and shoot on the run, which is important. TJ Malone for Penn State, 29 goals, 31 helpers, 60 points. He leads Penn State while Reese Burrick, 34 goals, 26 helpers, 60 points total leads Army. Each team's second leading scorer, Trainer Jack Trainer for the Nittany Lions, 31 and 16. Evan Plunkett for the Black Knights, 21 and 25. They are perfect complements for their higher scoring counterparts here. If we look at Malone, 29 and 31, he's a 50 50 guy. He's got Trainer opposite him, 31 goals, 16 assists, the goal scoring guy. And for Army, it's the opposite. You have Burrick, 34 and 26, a little bit goal heavy, but can do both things. Evan Plunkett, another near 50-50 guy, but skewed to the side of assists a little bit, which is why I say they're perfect complements of each other. Defensively, things are just as close. Penn State, third-ranked defense, uh, defense in the country, 31.7%. Army is the seventh, 31.4%. That means they're, getting, they're giving up goals at that rate. 31.7% of Penn State's defensive possessions turn into goals. Same for Army. Uh, both teams, they play physical, they handle Dodgers well, and they protect the inside of the field well. Uh, you see a lot of teams, they get smoked off ball a ton. I think you'll see less and less of those teams still playing as of this weekend. I give a slight edge to Penn State defense because I think Jack Frassian has has had an incredible season. He stopped 57% of his shots compared to Knox Dent in cage for Army is sitting at 54%. I think most would agree you'd take Frassian over Dent, but that doesn't mean shit when it comes to game day. Dent's been 52% or better in each of his last seven games. And then I, I initially looked that up and I was like, hey, that's a good sign for Army. But then I looked up Frassian's last seven games. Uh, he was at the exact same level, I think above 54% or so over the last uh, uh, seven games. So moral of the story, both teams have incredible keepers and the winning team is more than likely going to have the keeper that that had a higher save percentage that day. I feel like that the goal play, goalie play is going to come, come up huge in this one because, and it's going to have to for Penn State, because where Army has a chance to really gain an advantage on Penn State is at the faceoff dot. Penn State's the last kind of the team that has the worst faceoff uh, unit left in the playoffs, whereas Will Coletti, he's got that dog in him, man, and he's uh, has fifty. He's won fifty four percent or more of his draws in eight of his last nine outings, with the only game below fifty four percent being last weekend against Maryland and Luke Weirman, a game Army won anyway, and I think even then he was forty eight percent against Luke Weirman, one of the best in the country. Penn State has not been very good facing off this year, so they're going to have to rely on Frassian making some bonkers saves and maybe even outplaying. Knocks Dent a little bit to make up for what I presume is going to be a possession disparity that will favor Army. In the end, I think Coletti may actually be the X factor in this game, as he has been in a couple of games over the last like three or four for Army. Uh, I think he may provide them with the boost they need to make it to the Final Four. I feel that strongly that Coletti could turn the tides in this one based on the numbers. I think that this will be the 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 only game played all weekend where there's an, an a really lopsided. Uh, advantage uh, in in terms of faceoff dot and play for one of these teams. 
I think Penn State might get some solid wing play that could help. So if Penn State could just, you know, bother Coletti into not winning the draw and turn those into 50-50 balls, that's their best shot. But I think Coletti, I, I did not like Army coming into this tournament. I actually thought they were going to get bounced first round by Maryland in a close game. So as I'm sitting here now and I'm making this prediction, I'm actually picking Army to beat Penn State by one or two goals. I think they match up well everywhere. And the fact that it looks like on paper Army has – a huge advantage at the faceoff dot with Coletti. And, uh, you know, that that's where I think this game could be changed, especially if Knox Dent plays well and can keep pace with Frassi and engage for Army. So I'm going to pick Army by one or two goals in this one. And I'm surprised that I'm picking Army to make the Final Four because uh, coming into it, I, I, did, I do not have them in the Final Four in my pool. Uh, and now I do, which is weird to me here. So that's it. That's all I'm going to say about that game. Next game, man, my, I, I got an itchy mustache here today. Uh, number The six seed Hopkins against the three seed Notre Dame. Uh, in terms of seeding, this game should provide us with one of the closest games of the weekend because we do have a two seeded teams playing each other and they're both, you know, fairly closely related. Now, where would they match up in terms of actual data? Notre Dame's second in the nation in offensive efficiency, 40.1%, and they are first in the nation in defensive efficiency, only giving up goals on 19.8%. They're the only team defensively that is under 20% in the country. Now, to be clear, Hopkins isn't that far behind. They're 11th offensively, and they're 9th defensively. So Hopkins, they, they match up well here, but uh, the Notre Dame offense is, is just really, really tough to stop. I believe that Hopkins is going to be forced to outscore the brothers Kavanaugh and company in this game. I like Liam Entman in cage more than I like Tim Marcial. It's not really even that close as Entman boasts a 57% save percentage to Marcial's 51. Marcial has been very streaky all year long. Neither team's impressed me at the faceoff dot, so we, we really won't even go into that one here. If we look at the faceoff dot, I, I said Penn State had the worst unit left. Uh, Notre Dame may, where Notre, where I, I say Notre Dame would have the edge over Penn State is in, in turning faceoff wins into losses, you know, so they lose the faceoff technically to the team to, to the other team Notre Dame would, but then they end up getting the ball back before that team gets a settled clear and a possession out of it. So, you know. That's that. But in the end, I think what I'm not going to talk about this game as much as the others, just because I think in the end, the Notre Dame defensive depth ends up being the biggest factor in this one. Guys like Tevlin and uh, Quinn McCann, they're going to be some two way mids. They're going to put Hopkins both in some bad positions offensively because they're going to get to stay on the field. If that turns into a tough couple of goals, their ability to pick up ground balls and get the ball pushed in transition is excellent. I think that's a, an edge to Notre Dame. I think defensive depth that Chris Fake, Ross Bergmaster, Chris Conlon, I think that their depth in terms of defense, I, th I think, gives Notre Dame an advantage as well. Uh, I think they're going to probably do a decent job at limiting Angelus and Melendez on attack. I think Hopkins is most certainly back. So once again, I don't want to shit on Hopkins in any way. They've had an, an incredible season, and they're back, man. The culture they've installed there, if that carries on into next season and seasons after, they're going to be back, and they're going to be a team that's going to be in the quarterfinals often. Uh, the problem is Notre Dame is really good. You know, Notre Dame is really good, um, so I think all bets are off. Uh, but if I had to bet my life on who I think is going to win this game and someone said, hey, I got a gun to your head, pick the winner, and if you're wrong, you're going to get shot, I'm picking Notre Dame, and at the beginning of that game, it's going to be like, you know what? 
I don't want to get shot if I'm wrong, but I like my chances of being right. Uh, so I'm going to go with Notre Dame, and I think Notre Dame ends up winning this one by somewhere in the area of three to five goals. Now that is all she wrote for Division One. Now we're going to dive into talking about Division Two. And I've got the RPIs up and crap like that. We'll close this bracket. We don't even need that left anymore. So first game, Division Two that we're going to talk about ends up being undefeated Lemoyne at 17-0 against Mercyhurst. Now, Lemoyne, <coughs> they boast the highest RPI here. Uh, they, they've got the number one RPI. They've got the fifth-ranked uh, strength of schedule. And here, like th this is why Lemoyne's probably going to win this game here, though. Uh, they're one and zero against top five teams, three and zero against teams six through ten in in terms of RPI, and five and zero against teams eleven through twenty in terms of RPI. Now these teams, I thought, usually meet each other in the regular season, but it doesn't look like they did. Nope. They didn't meet each other in the regular season here. Um, so, I mean, it, what, what it comes down to, you got dudes that just score points for days. These guys aren't as, as insane as some of the D3 point getters are. But um, And once again, I don't even talk about D2 guys' names because they're so hard to pronounce. I mean, Miles Ham, 52 and 14, he's a dog. If you really look at Mercyhurst, goal heavy at the top here. Ethan Landemore, 49 and 15, Miles Ham, 52 and 14. What that would tell me is there's a lot of teams that these guys play that just can't handle them as Dodgers. You normally would be like, hey, they might play a little bit more off ball. I'm guessing that they're just animals in terms of dodging. Joey Pezzamenti, I think I got that right, 40 and 23. Uh, and then Seth Benedict Lemoyne looks like they've got a little bit more balance in terms of the top of their scoring between goals and, and assists. In terms of goalie play, both teams rocking solid goalies. Brett Olney, I know that name Brett Olney. Did Brett Olney play D1 lacrosse for somebody, and did he transfer to Mercyhurst? I think that may be the case. I want to say Olney may have played for like St. John's or somebody like that. I'm going to have to look that up someday. Someone pop it in the comments, though. But Olney at 58%, Matt Vavanese for uh, Lemoyne, 59%. And then the faceoff dot, I believe, was where they had the advantage. Yeah. Sean Doran for Mercyhurst, 73% at the dot off 358 draws taken. That's a lot. Nick uh, Mattia, uh, 56%. So definite edge to Mercyhurst there at the faceoff dot. Overall edge, though, to LeMoyne. I'm going to not pick scores or anything. I'm just going to say LeMoyne's going to beat Mercyhurst, and it actually could end up being a good game. We'll see. Limestone and Lenore Ryan. Now, Limestone, these guys are neck and neck in terms of RPI. Uh, Lenore Ryan came in third with the second toughest schedule in the country. Limestone comes in with an RPI ranking that is fourth and the number one schedule in terms of strength of schedule in the country. Dudes can fill it up here. Zachary Terry, 83-9. and nine. That is just an absolutely ridiculous stat line right there at the top here, scoring 83 goals at, at any level is absolutely incredible. Miles Moffitt, 44-31. and 31. I wonder if he's a Corning kid. There's Moffitt's from Corning that I'm familiar with here. Uh, so, yeah, they can get it done. Goal play, goalie play. Rob Pensabine uh, for Lenore Ryan, he's definitely got the edge in terms of save percentage here. And then at the faceoff dot, Pretty even. Tim Ladner, he's taken a shitload of draws for Limestone here at 63%. John Paulus. So I'm going to go. I'm going to I'm ready to pick. I'm ready to pick this one. I'm picking Lenore Ryan in this one. Have they played each other yet this season? They have. And Lenore Ryan lost to Limestone earlier in the season, 18 to 17. I'm going to go with Lenore Ryan is going to get some revenge and beat Limestone in this one. Boom. Now we are going to dive into 
the Division Three games. And we we're going to have Salisbury and Washington and Lee playing in this first one here. Now, if I dive in, Salisbury is number two in terms of RPI, and they have the sixth toughest schedule in the land. And Washington and Lee is all the way down to number 10 uh, in terms of RPI with the 11th toughest schedule in the land. You get, can't go without talking about Cross Ferreira. And his 107 points, 77 goals, 30 helpers. The dude's a beast. Jude Brown, 34 and 61. So Salisbury's got two dudes above 95 points. And, uh, you know, by the end of this game, they're probably going to have two dudes above 100 points. Washington and Lee, not far behind him, though, here. Hudson uh, Pocorny. I mean, that just completely makes my point about the guys with the dumb names end up having to play D3 lacrosse, no matter how dirty they are, because I suspect he's dirty, sitting at 47 and 50 with 97 points on the season. Uh, Hillis Burns right behind him, 50 and 27. Goalie battle. This one, with these teams, especially at the D3 level, it gets a little tougher, but it's dead on here right now at this point. Nicholas Ransom, 56%, and uh, Warren Seeds at 56%. That is assuming both of these guys are still starting. I don't have any data on that. Faceoff dot. Even. Blake Malemfi. Mal- Jeez, man. This is it's getting to be just a game. I should just sit down and start trying to read D3 dudes' names. Uh 60% here. Will Bow. That's a the dope name. 62%. Both of them have a second and third guy that will take some draws, both hanging at 50%. Slight edge here I'd give to Washington and Lee, though, because they have three guys that are all above 60% in this one. Now, granted, these guys might be getting it in map map mop-up duty, Gallagher and Tussing, but a little bit of an edge to them there. In the end. I'm going with uh, total depth. I'm going to go with Salisbury. Uh, I think Salisbury will beat these guys. They had not played so far this season. I think Salisbury played Washington. Yep, they have not played so far this season. I'm going to go with Salisbury. Probably a close game again. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see him beat him by more than that. But, you know, you got to go with the the goals here in this one. Salisbury State is what I want to call him in a really bad way. Tufts and Lynchburg. Tufts, third RPI in the country, eighth-ranked schedule in the country. Lynchburg is 11th in terms of RPI, and they played the fifth-toughest schedule in the country. Have they played each other so far this year? I know they try. Yes, they did play each other already this year, and Tufts whooped up on Lynchburg badly, 19-4. to Let's see what dudes did in that game here. Tufts, dudes scored goals galore. We had a bunch of guys factor and score points. Lynchburg, not so much. Goalie play, dead even, 50-50. Uh, both goalies made 50%, you know, stopped 50% of their their, their ro- the balls, the balls that they faced. Now, Michael Krause is actually a very good faceoff man, but he got absolutely roasted by Cone and Salcedo for Tufts here. If we go back out to this and we look at the goalie battle overall, you'd say, hey, it looks like Lynchburg has the edge, but we already know they don't. If you look at the faceoff dot, you would say Lynchburg, not too bad, but we already know Kraus already got roached by these guys. Uh, Cone, very good. Salcedo, not too bad himself, taking uh, almost you know half the draws or so uh, compared to Cone. So in this one, it's going to be tough by probably eight plus. I don't know that they'll beat him that badly again, but it's probably not going to be that close and Tufts is going to win that game. Christopher Newport and Dickinson. Christopher Newport comes in with the number one RPI in the land and the number one strength of schedule in the land, and they're going to take on Dickinson, who has got the fifth-ranked RPI and the 10th-ranked schedule overall. You look at Andrew Cook, Big Cat, 61-27 and 27 for 88 points. That's nuts. Alex Brendez, 56 points, 31. I mean, they're top three guys. Just put fill it up. 88 points for Cook. 
87 points for Brendez and this Auslander kid, 79 points. That's crazy. Uh, Dickinson, not quite as formidable offensively here. Skyler Schul uh, Schluter, 69 points. James Isaacson, 59 points. Both goal heavy. All th all their top four guys are all pretty goal heavy. Uh, so, you know, they're relying on athletes just beating dudes in the games that they've won. Goalkeeping. Pretty even. Zach Hanway, he's got the edge here for sure uh, over Chris Brandau, who's at 55% compared to Canway's 55, 55%. Both are at 55%. What the hell am I talking about then? And then at the faceoff dot, Christopher Newport, uh, Warner uh, Cabanis, I almost said cannabis, 68%. So he's the dog. And then John McKee, pretty good here also. Now, have they played each other already? Dickinson, whoops, I don't want to bring that up. Dickinson. Yes, they did. And it was a one goal win for Christopher Newport. I'm going to go. Christopher Newport's going to win this one, but it'll probably be a close game here. So Christopher Newport edge RIT Middlebury prediction. RIT. Have they played each other already? I don't think so. Nope. Uh, if we look at scoring wise, Luke Pilcher, 60 and 27, 87 points. So He's killing it here. And then they're in line with their, their role players behind them in terms of the goalie battle. Definite edge goes to Starrett uh, for RIT, if that's how you pronounce that. Face-off battle goes definitely to RIT. So, yeah, RIT is going to beat Middlebury. Probably four or five goals. RIT has been susceptible to playing down, though. They've had, let's see here, in that lot, one loss to Christopher Newport, they lost 15 to 11. But they have played some close games. You know, St. John Fisher was a two-goal game. You know, not terrible against Cortland here. So they've had to win some close games. Not lately, but they have. So I'm going to go with uh, RIT in this one. Three goals, five goals, somewhere in there. And that is a wrap, folks. I've been talking for 36 minutes thus far. Not too bad. Um, so game Saturday, game Sunday, we're going to watch them all here. Uh, you won't hear from me again until Monday. I will put out the recap show on Monday. And I'll actually recap and show highlights for D1, D2. I'm not, I don't know how deep I'll get into the highlights for all of them. We'll have recap and highlights for all of the D1 games. We'll have recaps and highlights probably for both of the... Eh, I'm going to try to work it out. I'm going to try to work out Sunday and get some at least a highlight or two from every single game. So be sure to come back Monday for Monday's show. I'm probably going to cut up all my highlights on Sunday. Got to install a pool this weekend, so I don't know how that's going to go. We'll see and all that crap. But uh, yeah, that's the podcast today, folks. Uh, next weekend... Sadly for me, I get a vasectomy on Friday. So let's see here. This is this is the last weekend that I get to spend with shooting not blanks. I guess I get to shoot. I still get to shoot fire um, even after I get my vasectomy on Friday. But uh, tomorrow it will be my last week with what is it? My vas deferens connected to everything, so that I'm shooting hot loads and then you know I'm shooting ropes as they would say, and then come. Uh, by Monday of next week, I won't be quite shooting ropes anymore. And then three or four weeks after that, I'm going to be, uh, what would they call it? Infertile. Uh, I will not be a man anymore. I will no longer be shooting ropes. Um, my, my loads will be much more measured. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how many of you actually got to the end of this and were completely taken aback and grossed out by my uh, forthrightness in terms of getting my manhood taken away a week from tomorrow. So we'll see how that goes. I am trying to make a last-minute play to see if I can get it rescheduled to a doctor that I like a little bit better than the one I have, but I'm thinking I might just be a man, get through it, and be done with it. F full story. Full story, if we're going to be honest here. About a year ago, I had this scheduled. The day came. I went to the doctor's. 
fully expecting as I was getting ready to go. Actually, I didn't get to the doctor's yet. I was on my way to the doctor's office, uh, getting ready to go to the doctor's office is what I should say. And they called me the last minute telling me, hey, by the way, you're not getting a vasectomy today. We got to do a new consult with a new doctor. So they threw me for a loop. I didn't like it. I ended up scheduling it with this doctor here for this one. So I've already had the schedule and I'd already be done if they didn't screw me over and at the last minute change my whole plan. So I'm wishing it was already over with, but it's not. I'm still spitting fire. And uh, by, you know, let's say a month from now, I probably won't be spitting fire anymore. So we're going to end it with that. I hope I didn't gross you guys out. I hope I didn't, uh, you know, make anyone throw up in their mouth. And uh, that's it. Hoost is, wait, I got to say the whole thing. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And uh, Hoost is out. The Lax Factor Podcast.